morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. As many of our longtime listeners know, this show taps into Fordham University experts, scholars, authors, and staff to discuss and uncover issues that impact our world near and far. But many of you may be surprised to find out that here at WFUV, the news department has made it a mission to train inspiring journalists for careers in multimedia journalism. While it means having to train new journalists on a yearly basis, some of the content these student workers produce show that you don't have to be a veteran to create quality content. So today we're showcasing some of the stories and interviews that students have produced for Fordham Conversations. We start with an award-winning piece by Sarah Kugel about the challenges of homeless, gay, and lesbian youth. It's a hot evening on Manhattan's west side at Hudson River Park. A breeze comes off the water as the sun begins to set. Joggers trot along the path parallel to the river while weaving in and out of people enjoying the view. Yet as the dusk paints the sky pink, the scene changes in more ways than one. Packs of teenagers meander into the park, four or five at a time. Most black and Hispanic, some no older than 13, they roam towards the piers. They carry plastic bags filled with clothes. They congregate, circling around tables or sitting cross-legged on the ground, looking out towards the water. (laughs) Some clusters play music and take turns watching each other dance. Another group, not so subtly, pours vodka into plastic red cups. Others sit in a circle, talking while passing around a joint. By 10 o'clock, at least 50 teenagers are nestled about the pier. Here we met a 17-year-old girl named Jay, who comes here every night with her girlfriend. She says everyone here has a story similar to her own. Um, I think it was about three years ago when I came out to my dad and told him I was a lesbian. And um, he's from Africa, so he didn't want to deal with it and didn't think that was the proper way to go. And he asked me if if um, I would want to be straight or gay. And if I was straight, I could stay in the house. But if I was gay, I would have to leave. So I chose to leave because I wouldn't want to lie to him about who I was. So I left. After she left, Jay spent almost two years couch diving and in and out of shelters before finding a space in foster care. The rest of the crowd at the pier considers her lucky because she has a place to go other than a mainstream shelter. Many gay and transgender youth who seek refuge in the youth shelters find themselves vulnerable to violence and abuse from other residents. One 19-year-old who asked to remain anonymous explains. Homosexuals that are placed in other youth-like shelters um, are in an environment uh, where it's like predominantly heterosexual and that can be quite stressful. Um, It's an environment where it's filled with hostility in a way. You can feel it in the air. You can literally feel it in the air. And the staff, they're not really conscious of what accommodations LGBTQ youth need, um, which is quite sad in a way. Covenant House, the largest homeless youth shelter in the city, says it works to create a comfortable environment, but many LGBT youth say they still feel uneasy there. Because of this, some take other measures. Some engage in prostitution just so they have somewhere warm to sleep. Others stay on the streets or, as this teen told me, on the 14th Street Pier, where he spent many nights. The official closing time for the pier is 1 a.m., but I would sneak back in and sleep in the children's park. It would be very cold and, you know, bugs would eat you up and everything. I 
these are marks on my arms because I was being eaten up by mosquitoes and whatnot. It's uncomfortable, but we need a place to stay. Unfortunately, there aren't many places for LGBT youths to stay. Throughout all five boroughs, there are fewer than 100 beds in shelters specifically for LGBT young people. The Alley Fournay Center houses more than half of them. Director Carl Siciliano says he knows firsthand that the supply doesn't even skim the surface of the demand. Uh, at the Alley Fournay Center, on any given night, we have 150 kids that we're turning away who are on a waiting list. There are just way too few resources. There are way too few beds. There are way, way too many kids. Hundreds of kids every night are stranded on the streets of our city. And so comes the inevitable question. Who's responsible for taking care of these teens? Siciliano says, yes, the government needs to take responsibility, but he says other groups need to step up, too. That the LGBT community needs to be more aggressive about this issue, that, that there needs to be more of a sense of crisis within our community, that so many thousands of young people are being hurt and rejected by their families because of being gay. I mean, this is happening to these kids because it's gay, and, and really it's like the most horrible attack on the gay community in our time. And we have to recognize that these young people are a part of our community, and we have to be more aggressive about demanding that our politicians make sure that our tax dollars go to protect our kids. A city-organized commission released a report this summer suggesting what more the city can do to help. Recommendations include a public awareness campaign on LGBT issues, improving health care services, offering support resources for families, and adding at least 200 regulated shelter beds for LGBT youth. However, since most of the recommendations cost money, city officials say it will be at least five years before solutions are implemented. We do function in uh, an unfortunate reality, and quite, you know, and that's the fiscal constraints of our budget. Um, not looking to push the budget to the point where families become homeless because they can't afford to pay our property taxes or live in the city. I think we're already pushing that. That's the chair of the city's um, Youth Services Committee, but, uh, Council Member you know, Lewis Fiddler. I've held over 14 hearings on this subject in the hope that mainstream media would start to cover it so people would think about it the way we thought about Willowbrook in the 70s and 80s um, and say this is not tolerable in a civilized society. Um, the problem is, is that, you know, the mainstream media has chosen not to cover those hearings, no matter uh, how much we've tried. And uh, um, so people still don't think about it. You've you got to think about it. Fiddler says if the public knew more about this, then maybe they would chip in funding, too. But regardless of where the money comes from, experts say it has to come soon. Caitlin Ryan is the director of the Families Acceptance Project and specializes in studies about LGBT youth and family acceptance of homosexuality. She says once these young adults are out in the streets, it's essential to get them into safe spaces as soon as possible. Well, one of the major problems is that when they are homeless as adolescents, it totally disrupts their education or any kind of ability to plan for the future, vocational or career development. So many of them end up not getting an education, and that already impacts their ability to live in society, to have a job. The longer they're out on the street, the more likely negative experiences and violence will happen to them, the more likely it will affect their mental health so that they end up having serious mental health problems, substance abuse problems. They will have to likely engage in illegal activities to survive on the street, being unable to get a job or find a place to live or really fit into mainstream society. So the likelihood of staying on the street increases the longer that they're out there. 
Back at Manhattan's Hudson River Park, tonight a few teens will leave to go to a shelter or foster home, but those are the lucky few. The majority will stay here without shelter or safe place to go until who knows when. Reportum Conversations, I'm Sarah Kugel. Next on Portum Conversations, WFUV's Ricky Sobrano and Kyle Kessis sit down with author Ernie Palladino. They discuss his book, Lombardi and Landry, how two of pro football's greatest coaches launched their legends and changed the game forever. Ricky Sobrano and Kyle Kessis talking to Ernie Palladino, Fordham class of 77. He covered the Giants for 22 years on the Giants beat and the author of the new book, Lombardi and Landry, how two of pro football's greatest coaches launched their legends and changed the game forever. Now, Ernie, Lombardi and Landry, both obviously great coaches, but personality-wise, they were pretty much polar opposites, weren't they? Diametric opposites, exactly. Wellington Mara uh, described the difference perfectly. He said, he said, you could hear Vince Lombardi from five blocks away. You couldn't hear Tom Landry from the next chair. I mean, th- this is how 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 opposite these guys were. Uh, Lombardi enjoyed a drink every once in a while. Uh, when he became coach of Green Bay, he had some legendary post game gatherings in his basement, in his re- basement rec room, where he would serve as a bartender and 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 make these wonderful drinks. Uh, Landry never touched alcohol. Um, Lombardi, uh, boisterous. Uh, a tyrant uh, at practice, uh, yelling. He'd call a player down in front of the team. He had no problems. Um, Landry never raised his voice. You'd just find yourself on the bench if you weren't producing. You didn't get chewed out. You didn't get slammed. You didn't get sworn at. You just found yourself out of a job, maybe off the team. Um, You know, Frank Gifford, uh, he was lucky enough to have been coached by both men. He wasn't always a halfback. He was a defensive back, too. And uh, and he said Tom Landry's chalkboard sessions were amazing. He, he said he was brilliant, but he'd bore you to death. He'd, he'd, he'd bore the hell out of you, he said. But, uh, but that's how he was. And, you know, he would actually pass players in the hallway who were hurt, and they, they weren't playing that week. And he just passed them by as if he didn't know them because he had nothing to say to them. You know, he, he was going to use all his speechifying energy to talk to the players who were actually going to help the team or who were actually had to, had to uh, um, uh, execute the game plan. So that's the kind of guy he was. Meanwhile, Lombardi... During his time with the Giants, because he changes as a person when he goes to Green Bay, he becomes the head and 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 you know the the, the real despot in Green Bay. Uh, he was he was kind of like Idi Amin without the massacres, um, you know. Um, he he. But when he was with the Giants, he was somewhat flexible. Um, he tried to install the West Point offense. He came from West Point as an assistant, and he tried to um, uh, install some of the option stuff, the quarterback option stuff he used at West Point. And poor Charlie Connerly, who was about 100 years old by then, 
Um, he doesn't want to run the option because there's a bunch of big hitters across the line. He didn't want to get squashed, so he wouldn't run the option. So, so Lombardi actually went to guys like Connerly and Gifford and said, what do you guys feel comfortable with? Help me. Help me create a game plan. Help me create a, a playbook that you guys are comfortable with and can have success with. Um, so there was a bit of flexibility there. He would also have players to the house in in New Jersey. He say he say, "Come on over. We'll we'll watch film and we'll eat some pizza." And and you know, Marie, his wife, would put out you know sandwiches or whatever and a couple of beers, and they they'd go over his house. Well, needless to say, once he became the coach of Green Bay, there were no more dinners at the house for active players. Uh, he never, you know, he he um, he didn't have that kind of relationship as a professional head coach that he did as a as an assistant. But you know, again, L- Landry was not that type of guy. He didn't. He was not a go out to dinner guy. The closest he ever came to having a player, you know, one-on-one in a social situation was what he did with Sam Huff, which is recounted in the book. They were living at the um, the Grand Concourse Hotel in 56. Oh, that's where a lot of Giants players and coaches lived during the season. And he would call Huff's room and he'd say, what are you doing? And he'd say, and Huff would say, I'm, I'm just watching TV. He says, good, come on up to my room. And we'll look at film. There's something I want to show you. And he would put game film and for hours they would go over game film. And this is how I want you to play this and that. And this is how Sam Huff learned the middle linebacker position, which was totally revolutionary at the time. Ernie in sports today, we hear a lot about how certain athletes respond better to certain coaching styles. Now we all know how, how positively Lombardi and Landry affected so many players Across your research, did you ever come across or get the feeling that some players did not respond so well to either of their coaching tactics? Oh, yeah. Uh, You know, there were people. uh, (laughs) There's a couple of stories in there uh, about uh, uh, Lombardi, especially um, tearing a player up during a a film session. Uh, He just got on Mel Triplett, the fullback, big fullback, real bruiser. Um, on one film session, I guess Mel missed a block or something, and he kept replaying it and replaying it and replaying it, and Mel finally stands up and says, you replay that one more time, and you're going to need another fullback. And, you know, he walked out of the room, and Lombardi says to Jack Stroud, geez, I wanted to make him mad, but not that mad. You know, and there was the other story about Lombardi that's 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 also in the book uh, about Alex Webster, and uh, he's getting on, he's getting all over Webster, who he was friends with in the off season. They would go out to dinner together. He's going on and on about Webster, replaying the tape, <laughs> and Alex is sitting back there, and he goes, "Expletive you," only he didn't say expletive. Um, and he says, <laughs> and Lombardi shuts the tape off, puts the lights on. He says, nobody talks to me like that. Webster, I'll meet you out by home plate. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. On today's show, we're showcasing some of the best work WFUV student reporters have produced for this show.
Reporter Connor Ryan takes a look at the bike share program, City Bike, and what it means for safety on New York City's streets. All right, buddy, you're going to be in a small. It's a sunny but comfortable afternoon on Manhattan's Lower East Side at Seward Park where young children, grandparents, and everyone in between is getting fitted for a free helmet. New York City's Department of Transportation began helmet giveaway programs in 2006, but ever since the announcement of City Bike's launch, the subject of bike safety has been renewed. Nina, a New York resident, and her young son, Naru, are among those waiting in line. She says despite the city's efforts to make biking easier, like increased bike lanes and more traffic signals, she's not convinced the streets are completely safe. I think it's more bike-friendly, but I don't know if, if it's necessarily safer as a, a whole endeavor. Dr. Matthew Fink is chief of the Division of Stroke and Critical Care Neurology at New York Presbyterian Hospital Wild Cornell Medical Center. He treats bike accident victims all the time, but says he knows firsthand the importance of wearing a helmet. I was in a near-fatal bicycle accident three years ago. And uh, I think the only thing that saved my life was that I had just bought a brand new helmet. If I had not been wearing the helmet, I'm, I'm sure I would have been killed. Dr. Fink notes that wearing a helmet reduces the risk of a serious brain injury for accident victims by 85 percent, but says he no longer rides in New York because he said too many, quote, close calls. The Department of Transportation says the risk of injury to cyclists in New York City has decreased by 75 percent since 2000, and officials remain focused on encouraging helmet use. Meanwhile, Mayor Bloomberg says the city's bike lane system is the key to safety. It would be better if everybody wore a helmet. I think in a practical sense, a lot of people won't. The most important thing we can do is separate bicycle lanes from traffic, and that's one of the things we're really trying to do. But John Pooker, a professor at Rutgers University in the School of Urban Planning and Policy Development, says cars and trucks often block bike lanes. And what's worse, it goes unnoticed. He says that fact, coupled with inexperienced cyclists on the road, could create a dangerous problem for everyone. Any bike accident after the bike share program launches, Pooker says, will likely be the fault of the New York Police Department and not the cyclists. And what I'm hoping is that this bike sharing system will bring this issue to a head and force the police to finally do their job. It would be sort of nice if the New York City police would finally do the job they're being paid for and keep those bike lanes clear. Pooker suggests police patrol the streets on bikes in order to gain a cyclist's perspective on the road. To start, City Bike will station 7,000 bikes in 420 docking stations in Manhattan, Queens, and Brooklyn, and rides will be available 24 hours a day. The Department of Transportation wants to increase those numbers to 10,000 bikes in 600 stations by next spring. The bikes are meant for short commutes, and rides are limited to 30 minutes. Cyclists must be at least 16 years old to use City Bike independently, and riders are not required to wear a helmet. As the bike share launch date nears, various advocacy groups are debating the best ways to promote safe riding. One such group is Transportation Alternatives. They plan to tailor their already existing bike ambassador program to help new city riders navigate the notoriously busy streets of Manhattan. Representatives will be located near bike docking stations to answer questions and provide other forms of help, according to the group's director of bicycle advocacy, Caroline Sampanera. Back on the Lower East Side, the once sprawling line in Seward Park has slowed to a crawl, and large cardboard boxes, once filled with 430 bike helmets, sit empty off to the side. Teresa Barry of the Department of Transportation says despite safety concerns with City Bike, 
She remains optimistic the future of biking in New York is on the right track. A lot of parents brought their children, uh, and that's, that's the future. So and I think you see parents uh, encouraging their children to be safe and to, in this case, bike safely, get a helmet. I, I think that's, that's very encouraging, and that's our future. Children under the age of 14 are required by New York State law to wear a helmet when riding a bike. Councilmember David Greenfield of Brooklyn is looking for all New Yorkers to join their ranks. The councilman is pushing legislation that would require all cyclists in the city to strap on some headgear before pedaling. I'm Connor Ryan, WFUV News. Up next, WFUV's Jake Neer has a conversation with 50s and 60s pop icon Dion DiMucci. He talks about growing up in the Bronx and his time on the doo-wop corner. Here's Dion discussing his early experience breaking into the music industry. When I was 16, 17, uh, there was a, a songwriter in my neighborhood, Pat Noto, who got me a uh, maybe an audition with a new record company that was starting out. At the time, you know, this is what became Laurie Records. But I went downtown with my guitar, and uh, there was a janitor. His name was Willie Green. Uh, he was the uh, superintendent of one of the uh, tenement buildings on uh, Cretona Avenue. He he said, just be yourself, sing the stuff you do on the stoop, you know, and some of the stuff he had taught me. And I went down there and blew them away, and they wanted to sign me, and I, they signed me up when I was about 17. And they put me with a group that I... I just, they had some existing tracks down at Laurie Records that I couldn't stand. They were like really overdone, you know. A guy named Lugo, Hugo Montenegro had orchestrated them and his arrangements, and he was great, but it wasn't my style of music. And they wanted me to sing on these tracks, and I did because, you know, hey, I was a recording artist after all. So uh, I, I sang on these tracks. Uh, tracks and and the song became a big hit in boston it was called the chosen few and uh i started talking to the company i said listen if you want me to sing with some guys i'll I'll go back to my neighborhood i don't want to sing with these okies from oklahoma you know they, they were like you know they were like old men who sang broadway show tunes so I, 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 they said, okay, let me see what you got. So I, I went back up to Fordham, took the D train, got off, and back home. I recruited three of the guys from just adjacent neighborhoods, you know, three of the guys that I knew that sang great doo-wop, uh, you know, street corner song. You know, they would hang out at the at their local candy stores playing records and singing harmony and, uh, impressing the girls and, and everybody else in, uh, in their neighborhoods, you know. So I, I I got these three guys, and we called them Dion and the Belmonts. Come up with that because I figured everybody was naming their groups after cars like the Cadillacs and the Eldorados or, or birds like uh, the Flamingos and, the, you know, that kind of thing. So I thought, let me let me pick a street here. So... Two of the guys were from Belmont Avenue. I called the group Dion and the Belmonts, and we came out with I Wonder Why, and just uh, it was history from there. We we had a lot of fun, you know, just recording and uh, <clears throat> enjoying the uh, 
the neighborhood adulation or the you know the the, the attention. Well, let me uh, you know get to this specific uh, corner that they kind of uh, again we're talking about. Uh, the New York City Music Trail, and I'm not sure how familiar with that, uh, you know, you might be, but it's, um, you know, the New York City Host Committee for the 45th Grammy Awards. Uh, sorry, not the 45th, but the Grammy Awards when they came back to New York after being in California for a long time in the early 90s. Uh, they chose uh, dozens and dozens of sites all over the five boroughs, and one of those sites, and one that I'm focusing on here, is it's they, they're calling it the Duop Corner. I'm going to read you the description here, and uh, I'd like to see if you find that this is accurate. Um, you know, they say that it's um, 187th Street and uh, Belmont Avenue. They say uh, teen idol Dion DiMucci named his backup group the Belmonts after the street corner where they polished distinctive arrangements of I Wonder Why from 1958 and their all-time hit Teenager in Love, 1959. Uh, again, you know, is that an accurate description? Uh, yeah, uh, pretty much. We would, we would sing, you know, pretty much near, you know, Mount Carmel Catholic Church there. But, you know, it wasn't one particular corner, but uh, that's close enough. You know, it, 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 it was on those streets right there. So you actually, uh, those early hits, I Wonder Why and Teenager in Love, those were songs that you actually worked out the arrangement right there in those, uh, on those corners? Well, I, well, I wonder why we we worked that out in my little room uh, where I uh, lived with my parents on 183rd and Prospect. But <clears throat> as soon as we had that in our pocket and we went down and recorded it, yeah, we would sing that on uh, 187th. You know, to to we were proud of it. A little bit of you know, show it off. You know. So, you know, when you were, you know, kind of trying out these songs on the, on the corners, you know, do, did you have any, um, you know, specific experiences that really jump out at you? You know, some fond memories of, of doing that, so maybe specific moments? Well, you know, what I, the thing is, when, when, when the Belmonts and I sang I Wonder Why, uh, it was a defining moment. It was like a major defining moment in my life because we were all singing something different. Carlo Mastrangelo was singing a riveting bass line, drilling, and Freddie Milano was singing low in a falsetto voice, uh, his ooh-wah-wahs, and Angelo would be soaring with his tenor voice over the whole song, and I would be singing lead, and we were it was like four distinctly different parts yet they fit perfectly together i felt like i was like it was a bit of heaven for me you know it was i i knew it was something great i never heard anything like this you know i knew we were somewhere where nobody's been i never heard anything like it uh because we all brought something very very unique to the table you know uh Angelo was an opera singer, and here he was singing what he had digested from some of these, uh, the channel, you know, the, the, some of the doo-wop records he was listening to. And I was, I loved country music and blues, and here I am singing lead. And Carlo was a jazz singer, and he's doing this uh, scatting part on the bottom as a bass. And Freddie was a, an out-and-out 
doo-wop harmony genius who was filling in. So uh, it, it was, it was not, and we were kids, and it was good. <laughs> it, it was, it was thrilling to be in the middle of that sound. And what stood out to me is it was hitting home to whoever was listening on the corner. Who, you know, the girls who came over and were listening to us, and and uh, who, whoever decided to uh, lean in from the streets and want to listen to us. I could see the impact we were making. We were connecting. Were there big crowds, uh, you know, gathering around you guys at that time, or? Yeah, for us, yeah. For us, you know, you you get sometimes 30, 40 people. It was like, whoa, you know. Oh, and the schoolyards, you know, all our friends, you know. And some sometimes we would just, you know, it was at a friend's party. We would do it, you know, and it was like uh, we'd get it on. And it was like something else. It was, it was really something. And, <clears throat> you know, basically we were, I would, I would hand out parts to these guys that, Basically, I heard at the Apollo Theater, you know, from the big bands, you know. So we, we were imitating horns. We were like a poor man's horn section. My thanks to all the students who worked diligently on this show, in the newsroom, the sports department, and at WFUV. I also want to thank my producer, Alan Kanlick. Your member dollars help us train, educate, and prepare the next generation for successful careers. When you make a contribution of any amount, you make a difference. Call 877-938-8907 or contribute online at WFUV.org. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.